Dear friends, let us turn now in the Word of God for our learning, for our instruction in righteousness, for our praise to Him. We turn to the book of 2 Samuel and the last chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 24. This is the Word of God that has come and here together, the Word of Almighty God, the Holy Word of God, the Lord speak to our hearts. Give us ears to hear his word. And again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he moved David against them to say, Go number Israel and Judah. For the king said to Joab, the captain of the host, which was with him, Go now through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan even to Beersheba, and number ye the people that I may know the number of the people. And Joab said unto the king, Now the Lord thy God add unto the people how many soever they be, an hundredfold, and that the eyes of my lord the king may see it. But why doth my lord the king delight in this thing? Notwithstanding, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the captains of the host. And Joab and the captains of the host went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. And they passed over Jordan and pitched at Aroah on the right side of the city that lieth in the midst of the river Gad and toward Jazer. Then they came to Gilead. And to the land of Tahim, Tim, Hodi, She, and they came to Dan, Jan, and about to Zidon, and came to the stronghold of Tyre, and to all the cities of the Hivites and of the Canaanites, and they went out to the south of Judah, even to Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, They came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. Joab gave up the sum of the number of the people unto the king. And there were in Israel eight hundred thousand valiant men that drew the sword. And the men of Judah were five hundred thousand men. And David's heart smote him after that he had numbered the people David said unto the Lord, I have sinned greatly in that I have done. And now I beseech thee, O Lord, take away the iniquity of thy servant, for I have done very foolishly. When David was up in the morning, the word of the Lord came unto the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say unto David, Thus saith the Lord, I offer thee three things. Choose thee one of them, that I may do it unto thee. So Gad came to David, and told him, and said unto him, Shall seven years of famine come unto thee in thy land? Or would thou flee three months before thine enemies, while they pursue thee? Or that there be three days pestilence in thy land? Now advise, and see What answer I shall return to him that sent me. And David said unto Gad, I am in a great strait. Let us fall now into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great, and let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence upon Israel from the morning even to the time appointed. And there died of the people from Dan even to Beersheba 70,000 men. When the angel stretched out his hand upon Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord repented of him of the evil and said to the angel that destroyed the people, It is enough. Stay now, thine hand. The angel of the Lord was by the threshing place of Arona, the Jebusite. And David spake unto the Lord when he saw the angel that smote the people. 
and said, Lo, I have sinned, and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Let thy hand, I pray thee, be against me and against my father's house. Gad came that day to David and said unto him, Go up, rear an altar unto the Lord in the threshing floor of Arona, the Jebusite. David, according to the saying of Gad, went up as the Lord commanded. And Aruna looked and saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Aruna went out and bowed himself before the king on his face upon the ground. Aruna said, Wherefore is my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor of thee, to build an altar unto the Lord, that the plague may be stayed from the people. And Aruna said unto David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what seemeth good unto him. Behold, here be oxen for burnt sacrifice and threshing instruments and other instruments of the oxen for wood. All these things did Aruna as a king give unto the king. And Aruna said unto the king, The Lord thy God accept thee. And the king said unto Aruna, Nay, but I will surely buy it of thee at a price. Neither will I offer burnt offerings unto the Lord my God of that which doth cost me nothing. So David brought the threshing floor and the oxen for fifty shackles of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord was entreated for the land. Plague was stayed from Israel. Amen. This is the word of the Lord, and may the Lord be pleased to bless the reading, the public reading of his precious, infallible, inerrant, and sacred word, all to the glory of his name and to the good of our needful and never-dying souls. Let us come before him in prayer. Well, dear congregation, I ask you to please turn your prayerful attention to the last chapter of the book of Second Samuel, we come now to the last chapter of the book of Second Samuel, and uh, we may be thinking that it ends rather abruptly and strangely, and it does. This last chapter of Second Samuel, chapter twenty-four, ends in a peculiar way. It doesn't end with the death of David, does it? We will see why, I trust, something quite profound at the end of this chapter. And as we study further scripture. Well, as we come to this last chapter this morning, remember last chapter, chapter 23, let's just put it into context. We saw what was described as David's last words. Now, we said we don't know if those were his very last words, but probably may well be his last words to the nation Israel publicly. We don't know if that is the case. We will see some final words in 1 Kings chapter 2. But whether those words were the final words or not, we don't know. David was trusting, was he not, in God's covenant toward him. We saw some key words there in Chapter 23, verse 5, he said, Although my house be not so with God, yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure, for this is all my salvation and all my desire, although he make it, that is, some suggest the covenant and the people of that covenant not to grow. Now, there's been some debate as to the meaning of the last few words there, but we won't uh, unnecessarily uh, deal with the last part there. Some suggest that it is those in the covenant, those who are sealed in that covenant, they will not increase. God has determined who all of the elect are. And that was David's hope. David, as he reflected upon his life, as he reflected upon his family that was in such a mess, such a state, all the sons that he had, 
and the one daughter, as he looked at the family, he said, My house is not so with God. Although it be not so with God, yet he has made with me an everlasting covenant. It was, as we said, the covenant of grace. David was resting and trusting in this, that God would set upon his throne the everlasting king, the king of kings, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would come into this world, the eternal king. Remember when blind Bartimaeus heard of the Lord Jesus Christ coming by, he said, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy upon me. He was trusting in the Lord Jesus, just as David. And David thanked God for the covenant of grace. Salvation is entirely of grace. We cannot, as Paul says to the Galatians, add any works to grace. It is grace and grace alone whereby we are saved. God quickens the sinner who is dead in trespasses and sins and makes them alive and brings them to a conscious awareness of their sin and their unworthiness and open their eyes to see the Savior that died for his people and everyone of Christ's shall be one day with him in heaven. That was David's hope, that God would set upon his throne an everlasting king, Jesus Christ, the king of righteousness. Now we come, as we said, the close of Second Samuel, to a chapter that abruptly ends, and we'll see why this morning, with the Lord's help. But I want to make, first of all, a few points, and as we come through the passage, a number of observations that we need to glean and make application for our lives. David here, we find him numbering the people. And David knew that this was a sin, and he confesses it. And the first point, I suppose, we need to observe and make is, first of all, the whole subject here of leadership sin and leadership sin may come as a judgment from God to the nation. And it did. David sins here. But there is something else behind David's sin too, isn't there? Notice verse 1. And again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. God was angry with Israel. And he moved, that is, God moved David against them to say, Go, number Israel and Judah. Now, there are a couple of important things to remember as we come to this first statement given to us here. We read here that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Think of it for a moment. This nation, Israel, had heard of how David in just the previous chapter, before the last, chapter 22, spoke of how God had delivered him from all of his enemies. God had blessed this nation through David. And yet there has been no glory ascribed by the nation to God. There was an unthankfulness for the way in which God had moved through David and 37 men. The nation were not thankful to God in his mercies toward the nation. And ultimately, we could say, they were not only to disloyal to David, because they were, remember how they followed after Absalom, but in rejecting David for a while, they were ultimately rejecting God, because David was the anointed, was he not, of Israel. He was the man who God had chosen and selected to be leader of the nation, although he was imperfect. We must add that. David was a man who sinned, and when he sinned, it was public confession, wasn't it? We have the Psalm 51. He said he had sinned against God and God alone, and he confessed that. David was not a perfect man, but he was a man that was humbled by the grace of God. But the people were not really loyal to David, were they? They were fickle. They quickly ran after Absalom. Remember how Absalom stood by 
the city gate. And we're told how he stole the heart or the hearts of the men of Israel. How he promised to win their court cases, even corrupt people. How he would win the court cases. How he would be a good king. But he was dishonest. He wasn't really a man concerned for justice and equity in the land. He's a man that just wanted to be king and line his own pockets and usurp the kingdom from his father, David. And even wanted his father dead, didn't he? Absalom. He not only stole the hearts of the people of Israel, but he was prepared to kill his father. He was a ruthless and a violent man. Remember how he even killed his brother Amnon. And he even slept with his father's concubines. He was not only ruthless, but he was perverse. And then sadly, 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 Israel quickly went after him. And it seemed that most of Israel followed him for a while until God intervened and overthrew Absalom. Remember, as he went out against David, God overturned it all. Israel basically were disloyal, not only to David, but to God, who God had appointed as leader of Israel. And despite Absalom's stealth and slyness, the people were, all of them individually responsible to make a right choice. And so in that, God, and they never repented, really. They never really confessed that sin of being disloyal to David and ultimately disloyal to God. Well, God, however, determined to put David, to keep David on the throne and to put eventually Christ upon his throne, that he should come through the line of David, that Solomon should be the king next, and that eventually the Christ would come into the world. God, determined to save his people, has preserved David even till now. David was the king of God's choice, although an imperfect king, as we have said. Solomon must soon be king, as we'll see in all that follows. Now, there's a continuous ingratitude from the nation. We notice how, how the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he moved David against them to say, go number. Now, there's the element here of David's sin. So we thought of God's anger toward the country. But David's sin. David goes and he numbers. David is responsible, isn't he, for numbering. Now, it was not permitted to number the people unless sanctioned by God. If you notice in verse 10, David knew it was sin. As soon as he numbers, and even Joab of all people, tries to prevent him from numbering. David knew it was sin. Verse 10. Once the census has come in after nine months, we read, verse 10, and David's heart smote him after that he had numbered the people. And David said unto the Lord, I have sinned greatly in that I have done. And now I beseech thee, O Lord, take away the iniquity of thy servant, for I have done very foolishly. So he knew it was a sin. Now, it was a sin because God's word did not sanction it. There was a very clear instruction that if there was to be a numbering, there was to be a shekel taken. Every year there was a numbering. But it was a religious numbering. There's a difference. Unless, of course, God had sanctioned a numbering. First of all, the nation of Israel, it was normally the fighting men that were numbered. But if it was the men were numbered, they were to be numbered by God's permission and by God's permission. Here it was done by pride because of his pride. Even Joab says, why dost thou delight in such a thing? Joab knew it was wrong. Now if you turn to Exodus chapter 30, I'll show you an example of this numbering, and this was part of the levy or the tax that was to be paid to the temple, even in our Lord's day. Remember how he said to Peter, go and find the money in the fisher's mouth. And that money was used to pay the temple tax. 
and it still continued. Now notice in Exodus 30 verse 12, When thou takest the sum of the children of Israel after their number, then they shall give every man a ransom for his soul unto the Lord, when thou numberest them, that there be no plague among them. When thou numberest them, this they shall give every one that passeth among them that are numbered. Half a shekel after the shekel of the sanctuary. A shekel, we're told here, is 20 giras, and half shekel shall be the offering of the Lord. And elsewhere we read it's, the, it's called the atonement money, or, yeah, the, the ransom money, same thing. And so this was only done in a religious context, but this was not sanctioned here by the Lord and certainly not done for religious purposes. And so this was wrong. And uh, one of the things, sometimes, and sadly, been done on other occasions, and the Lord uh, was displeased at it, is that if there was no trust in God, trusting in numbers rather than the Lord, and that was a sin. And we read here that the Lord moved against them to say, go number the people. Now, it might seem that God is contradicting himself here, but it's not the case. We find, and first of all, the first point we need to, to, to understand that God is judging the nation here even by David's foolish action. The disposition was already in David's heart. Let us understand that. God does not put evil dispositions in men's hearts, does he? How does God move David to go and number the people? Well, God can and does move what we call common operations of his spirit. God does move restraints upon people so that when men go on in sin, they act in a certain way. Stephen Charnock used the illustration. I know I've used it a number of times. It's like you put a candle near heat. What happens? It softens. When you take away the candle from the heat, it goes hard again. You see, when the common operations and good influences are removed from us, man is left to himself. Is God then left to be blamed for the condition of man's heart? You see, it was already there in David's heart. The common operations of the Spirit may have a great effect. This is how God will move and did move David so that he numbered the people. God is not responsible for David's decision to go a number, and even pressed here by Joab of all people. It's interesting, isn't it? Most of the time, he listened to Joab. We've made the point several times that it seemed as if Joab always got his way with David, but not here. It's interesting, isn't it? Not here now. David's word prevails over not only Joab, but all the princes, all the captains of the host. They're all pleading, but David is determined. There's pride in his heart. David was at a low spiritual state, even now, because he goes and does something that he knows is wrong, and it takes him nine months, nine months, And as soon as the number comes in, it's over nine months even. As soon as the number comes in, he's smitten in the heart and he says, I've sinned. I've done wrong. You see, it's not that God puts sinful desires and disposition into men's heart, but rather the Lord in his displeasure against Israel, what he did is he moved godly influences and restraints upon David so that he left David to his own Sinful heart to number the people. That's how we must understand it. Do you understand that? You know, even people who are not saved, you watch them stop coming to church. Church can have a modifying effect on that person's life. 
And even if you're saved, you start coming to church, you stop hearing the word of God. You start to act very differently, don't you? You see how this can be done? You see, David really is left to his own, isn't he? And he makes an ungodly decision. And this is actually a judgment on the nation. Solemn, isn't it? So we say firstly that God indeed will judge a nation by foolish decisions made of its leaders very often. It's often been said that God gives a nation the leaders it deserves. And here, because of their ingratitude, he leaves the nation to itself and he leaves David to himself. And David goes ahead and does something that he knew was wrong. And a plague comes over the nation and it is severe. Over 70,000 men die. This is not a small thing. So firstly, what does this mean? It does not mean that God puts sinful desires and sinful dispositions into men's heart. Now, I want you to notice something else. If you turn to First Chronicles, it's the same account, by the way. Look at this. This is tremendous. We see, the, secondly, the activity of Satan in, in this situation. And, and the Bible, by the way, here is not contradicting itself. The Word of God is not contradicting itself. It's exactly the same occasion. First Chronicles 21, verse 1. We notice here Satan's activity in the same event. Notice. Verse 1, And Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel. You see the other side of it? What happens? And David said to Joab and the rulers of the people, go number Israel from Beersheba even to Dan and so on. We get to this and we see how verse 4, nevertheless the king's word prevailed against Joab and so on. You see here it says here, Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel. God removes his restraint from David and Satan jumps in straight away. You see that? David was left to himself. And Satan took advantage of the situation. It's a warning, isn't it? Satan must be resisted. But he can only be resisted as we obey God. You stop obeying God. My dear friend, Satan is a lot stronger than you think. James says, resist the devil, he will flee from you. So we see it from two vantage points here. It's the same occasion. The word of God's not contradicting itself. It says here, Satan provoked or tempted David. So the temptation came externally. Pride. David is going on in his own way. Seems he's walking at a distance, even like Peter. Remember how Peter walked from afar off? And then he's asked, do you know this man, Jesus? And he begins to, to swear, to curse. Now let me just say this, God does not tempt anybody. He says here about Satan. Satan stood up against Israel. God moved in such a way that David did this, but God is never one who tempts. James 1.13, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted, says James, when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And so we have it here. We have it here in the scriptures, Second Samuel and this last chapter. And uh, it's quite solemn, isn't it? This is not only Satan's temptation, but David in his heart. And then there's this plague. Now the first thing, second thing we must say is God is not the author of sin, is he? But God will even use the sin 
This, this is the amazing thing, the sin of David for the good of the people of Israel to bring a plague upon them. And uh, you'll see even more today. We, we, we know this, I trust, concerning Job. We know what happens in Job chapter 1. We considered it with the young people yesterday. Now even... As the Lord said to Satan, hast thou considered my servant Job? And we know that Satan was given so much power. We've said it before, Satan is like he is on a leash. And uh, he can only do so much, but the Lord will even work Satan's evil for the good of his people. How wonderful is that? That the Lord can do that and will do that. But God never puts evil there. He's not the author of evil. We know in Job 1.12, the Lord said unto Satan, as I said, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power. Only upon himself put not thine hand. Well, he couldn't touch him. There's that verse in Psalm 76, verse 10, where the psalmist reminds us, Surely the wrath of man shall praise thee. Think of it, the wrath of man shall praise God. Men may rise up, but it's only going to redound to the praise of God, isn't it? Can anyone defeat God's purposes? When men rise up in wrath, the wrath of man shall praise thee. And then we read, and the remainder of wrath shalt thou, God, you will restrain. Why? Because God... Is too powerful for men. And he can and does restrain even evil. God, we've said, is not the author of evil, but he can control evil by certain good dispositions that he puts all around us. You see, if you do not have a sovereign God, you do not have a real God at all, do you? But God is sovereign, he is powerful even concerning the death of our Lord Jesus. You consider that? Remember Peter and the apostles, they're locked up and they're praying to God and they say, For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do what? For to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. God had determined that evil men would put Christ upon a cross. But ultimately that it would redound to the glory of God and to the salvation of his elect as Christ would be crucified for them and bear their sin in his own body. So here, David, look at the sin, his taking great pleasure in numbering. This is the great sin. Look at verse 3. What Joab, he, Joab tries to stop him. Joab of all men. Why doth my lord the king delight in such a thing? Joab is, is, is saying that this was a sort of a delight. David is taking pride in numbers. You look back at all the, oh, how many men, and, and it's by the way, 800,000 fighting men, and then, 500,000 of Judah. And this uh, really would have brought some pride. And then the number comes in. After all these months, and uh, verse 9, And Joab gave up the sum of the number of the people unto the king. And then there it is, 800,000 men who drew the sword, 500 men of Judah, and so on. Now, isn't this striking? especially when we consider this chapter over and against the previous chapter where David reminds us that all the great victories were won by a few valiant men. How many? 37. And David was really glorying in God there, wasn't he? When the 37 men were mentioned, and last of all, Uriah the Hittite. Faithful, valiant men. But now the number comes in. David takes pride in this. And then you notice there's, a, there's an awakening, thirdly. 
verse 10. And David's heart smote him after the, that he had numbered the people. This is after the number comes in in verse 9. And David laments. He says to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in that I have done. Now I beseech thee, O Lord, take away the iniquity. David here suddenly appears to be as a man that is awakened. I mean, for these nine months, he's not troubled. It's bizarre, isn't it? But all of a sudden, it's like he's woken out of a sleep. And, and even Christians can be like this. For months and months they go on in something that they know they, they know is wrong, but it really doesn't cut them to the heart. Until a certain point, it's as if they're suddenly awakened. It, it's as if they were stupefied. And then all of a sudden, they come to a realization, this is really bad. This is terrible. How can I do this? It seems that for a while, that a knowledge and understanding of the word of God had been suppressed in David's life. Well, this was to satisfy his own particular desire. He took great delight in it. And we can do that. Sadly, you know, we can suppress certain truths in our lives to satisfy some sinful desire that's there in our hearts. And we know it's wrong, but we just suppress it. We just keep it. I know, I know it's wrong, but I just keep doing it. So the months passed by. Nine months and 20 days to stop this man in his sin. But it's amazing, isn't it, how his heart smote him only then, as we said. And, you know, people make all kinds of foolish decisions. Sadly, months and years later, after making some stupid decision, and then they say, why have I done this? And people have tried to stop you, but you don't stop. You just determined you're wise in your own eyes. David says here, I've sinned. But David does confess his sin. This is the difference between a believer and somebody that is saved and somebody that is not saved. An unsaved person never really will repent, will they? But sin can be very painful. And look at how many people die here. Over 70,000 men. This is a costly But it was a judgment, was it not? It was a judgment, my dear friends, on Israel. And now David, he's got to live with the consequences. I also am responsible. Look at verse 11. God sends the prophet Gad. When David was up in the morning, the word of the Lord came unto the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say unto David, Thus saith the Lord, I offer thee three things. So David has three choices here. What are they? Seven years of famine come unto thee, thy land, or would thou flee three months before thine enemies, so they're going to run away from the Philistines or whoever that would be, or there'd be three days of pestilence in the land. Well, David chooses here the short Sharp, it seems, he makes the choice. He says, it it, it is rather difficult to say whether David actually made the choice or not. But at any rate, he casts himself on God, and what happens is, there is a pestilence that came upon the land. Three days, we read. And uh, then in verse 16, the angel of the Lord is about to destroy Jerusalem. Some people say, well, David chose the fourth option. As if there was a fourth option, well, we don't know that. But he says here that he will cast himself upon the Lord. And David said unto Gad, I am in a great strait. Let us fall now into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great. Let me not fall into the hand of man. So is David saying, I let God make the choice in this? Or does God just, or does he see that the third option, because the third option is, it seems, what actually takes place. The great pestilence comes. David doesn't run from the enemies. There isn't a a famine for many months. It's not a famine, but there's a great pestilence. 
in the land. Now, you notice, so the Lord, verse 15, sent a pestilence upon Israel from the morning even unto the time appointed. And there died of the people from Dan, even to Beersheba, 70,000 men. Now, the word there, pestilence, can also mean plague. So suddenly, all of a sudden, 70,000 men died. Quite something, isn't it? And then, when the angel stretched out his hand upon Jerusalem to destroy it, it seems now the Lord restrains from him going ahead. The word repented him can mean turned. So the Lord turned. Because David approaches, as he approaches Jerusalem. Now, as I said once again, whether David made the actual choice is not clear. Opinions differ on this. But nonetheless, the shorter and sharper judgment comes upon the land. And uh, this is quite severe, isn't it? A terrible plague, verse 15. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. From Dan to Beersheba, that is really saying that this is a judgment across Israel, isn't it? That's the whole lesson we need to get from this. God is judging Israel. But it was by what David did. So if you, you think about these judgments, in fact, in all of these, God is saying to the nation and to David, you are both responsible. It is by David that this has come to pass. You numbered the people, David, but it will fall upon Israel. Not David's house, but the whole of Israel. And by the way, if God took those certain men and they would have been certain people that God would have taken away. You remember that. God doesn't do anything willy-nilly, as it were, or haphazardly. But everyone that God took would have meant to have been taken. Nobody died accidentally. Everybody suddenly. Everyone that died suffered of their own deserts. And this is a warning, isn't it, to everyone? So it ought to be a warning to everyone even here in the church. David glorified in numbers. And churches can glorify in numbers, can't they? Oh, look how many we've got. You take pride. That's wrong. David should rather have glorified in God. And let me say this, godliness is more important than numbers, isn't it? It's not so much the size of a church. We may look, we may be very few. And I hope you do not judge this Church by its size, just like you don't judge a man by the size of his wallet. But how godly is the church? How godly are the people? But in wrath, the Lord remembers mercy. Look at the verse 16. And when the angel stretched out his hand upon Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord repented or turned of him of the evil and said to the angel that destroyed the people, it is enough. Stay now thine hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing place of Arana, the Jebusite. Now, it's very important here as we come to this passage, we've got to realize that the Lord stayed the, the angel's hand. The angel, and now an offering has to be offered up. Otherwise, it's going to continue. Here is what we call a reprieve. From the situation, the Lord will destroy more. If something isn't done, something has to be done. And so, Gad the prophet comes, verse 18, and there's a message to David Go up, rear an altar unto the Lord in the threshing floor of Arana. The Lord has sent him, Arana the Jebusite. Perhaps this man was a proselyte, it seems. Some suggest that. And David, according to the saying of Gad, went up as the Lord commanded. And Arana looked and saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Arana went out and bowed himself before the king on his face upon the ground. He was a respectful man, wasn't he? And uh, 
Arana, well, you read on in this passage, he's got all the livestock, he's got the place to build the altar, he's got everything. All the provisions are there. And he offers, if you notice, verse 22 and following, David this area free of charge. It will cost David nothing. And David refuses. David says, does he not? In verse 24, And the king, that is David, said unto Arana, Nay, but I will surely buy it of thee a price. Neither will I offer burnt offerings unto the Lord my God of that which doth not cost me, which doth cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor. Now this is a, a very interesting passage here, and important really at the close of the book of Second Samuel. One of the first things we glean here is that the pestilence, after David offers up sacrifices, the pestilence was stopped. We're told, look at the verse 25, and David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. Now notice, so the Lord was entreated for the land, and the plague was stayed from Israel. So as David offered up here, and this really is a solemn reminder, isn't it? Ultimately, that God can only be appeased by the shedding of blood. And it points us, does it not, to Christ. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sins. Of course, this is all in type form and pointing us to Christ. The second thing we glean is that while Arana here, this man, was willing to give, David was not prepared out of principle, uh, to just go along with this. He felt it need it to be part of a personal cost because he is showing his ownership in all of this. I am responsible. What does he say? I will surely buy it of thee of a price, neither will I offer burnt offerings unto the Lord my God, of which doth cost me nothing. And that's true, let me say, although we contribute nothing to our salvation. Let me say this, a religion that costs you nothing is worth nothing. Christ bought us that we might be his, that we might be his servants. He saved us to live a life honoring to him. And David knew that a religion that costs you nothing is worth nothing. Now, when God saves us, it is not so that we earn our salvation, but that we show our love to him, and we show our commitment to him. Now, this is an interesting thing. As we come to this passage, what you will see here is not only a religion that costs. And let me read something from Matthew Henry to you. Those who know not what religion is, who chiefly care and to make it cheap and easy to themselves, and who are best pleased with that which costs them least pains of money, for what have we our substance but to honor God with it? And how can it be better bestowed? See the building of the altar and the offering of the proper sacrifices upon it. Burn offerings to the glory of God's justice. Peace offerings to the glory of his mercy. Think of it, David did not want to give God the scraps. He wanted this to be costly to him. He knew 70,000 men were slain. He knew his sin. He knew he couldn't pay for it. But he wanted to give God what he could. And he wanted to show his gratitude. You see, David, it cost him personally. Because God was dear to him. He wanted God to be dear to him. And, and it's true if we are a Christian, and if we have been saved, what does the psalmist say in Psalm 116? What shall I render to the Lord for all of his mercies. What shall I, you render up your life, Paul says in, doesn't he, in Romans, offer up yourselves, therefore by the tender mercies of God and all that God has done for you in Christ, 
Now you offer up yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing unto God, which is your reasonable service. I mean, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you want to give your whole life to God? Why wouldn't you want to serve him? Well, God is pleased with this. And God knew David would buy it. But you see, the the offer of it being free was there. But David did want it to be costly to him. And the Christian doesn't mind. In fact, he is just only delighted to spend and to be spent for the sake of Christ. The whole of the Christian life is now rendered to the Lord. Think of the great debt we owe God. We can never pay God. Think of all that Christ did. He left heaven and the worship of angels and he lived a life of 33 years of complete obedience and then to suffer the death of deaths for his people and to die an unspeakable anguish, not just by the hands of wicked men, but to be forsaken of the Father, to give us a title in heaven, to give us eternal life, You're going to give God the scraps of your life? David says, what does he say here? In the verse 24, he says, concerning God, I will surely buy it of thee of a price, neither will I offer burnt offerings unto the Lord my God, that which doth cost me nothing. My friends, I don't want a religion that costs me nothing. In terms of my service, I know I could never pay God. But I want to show my love to God. And thank God he he is pleased to receive, isn't he? Thank God he was pleased to receive this and to stay the plague. You know, how do we give to God? We rise up early on the Sabbath, don't we? We rise up, in fact, early every morning and we get up and we pray and we read our Bibles. And we study how to live godly in Jesus Christ. And we long to meet God every day. That's how you show your thankfulness. Because he will meet you in prayer. He will carry out his promises. I mean, if he's given you promises as a Christian, surely you want to see them met out. You want to see them worked out in your life. That's how you show your thankfulness. What kind of a child, let me ask. As a parent who is so kind and says, I will do this for you, do this this for you, and do that. But the child never comes and never applies for those promises. I would say an ungrateful or an unbelieving child. But you see, the child is happy to rise up and go to the Father. And we are to rise up every morning and to seek our God. The Sabbath well spent brings a week of content, the strength for the toils of the morrow. But a Sabbath profaned, whatever may be gained, is a certain forerunner of sorrow. God has given you his day, and we must employ it for the good of our souls. We are to spend, as we sang, ourselves in holy energies for God, and God will bless it. The Lord observes, doesn't he, our attitude. The Lord observed David's heart here. God doesn't want scraps from our lives, does he? Well, I want you to notice something else. This passage, as I said, ends rather abruptly. It ends here with this, the altar that is reared up. Verse 25. But I want you to notice as we come to Second Chronicles, turn with me to Second First Chronicles, I beg your pardon. And uh, by the way, here the name Orana is also called Ornan. So you you will see here how and why the passage ends like it does. This explains really where the temple of God is built. Notice 1 Chronicles 22.1. And this very place, by the way, is where the temple will be built. 
and where Solomon will erect the temple. Then David said, if you notice, 1 Chronicles 22.1, This is the house of the Lord, and this is the altar of the burnt offering for Israel. And David commanded to gather the strangers that were in the land of Israel. And he sent masons to hew wrought stones to build the house of God. And David prepared iron in abundance for the nails of the doors of the gates and for the joinings and brass of abundance without weight. Also cedar trees in abundance for the Zidonians and they were of Tyre brought much cedar to wood to David. And David said, Solomon, my son, is younger and tender and the house that is to be builded for the Lord must be exceeding magnifical of fame and of glory throughout all countries. I will therefore now make preparation so David prepared abundantly before his death. You come to Second Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1. Notice Second Chronicles 3, verse 1. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem in Mount Moriah, where the Lord appeared unto, his, unto David his father. Now notice, in the place that David had prepared in the fresh threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. So it's the same man here, Orana. This is where David now instructs Solomon to build the temple at this very threshing floor. And thus it explains the very abrupt ending of this book, doesn't it? And what, what is God saying to us? God is saying to us, the book of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel is not chiefly about David. It's about Christ, who will eventually come into the world and who would walk in this temple. That is what is being set forth. This explains the abrupt ending of this book. The intended purpose is not a biography of David. It's not a biographical sketch, is it? But it is about Christ. The temple will be built. And we read here that in David's last days, how he abundantly prepared Did you read that for this temple? All the supplies, David, he he gets in everything so quick. And David said, Solomon, my son, is younger than I. And the house that is to be built of my Lord must be exceeding magnifical of fame and glory throughout all countries. I will now make preparation for it. So David prepared abundantly before his death. So just before his death. Here's the threshing floor, the place of Aran or Onan. Orana, this is where it will be built, in Mount Moriah, there in Jerusalem. Ornan or Orana, the Jebusite. And so it explains why we come to this. In First Chronicles 22, 1 we read, And David said, Solomon my son is young and tender, and the house that is builded of the Lord must be exceeding great and so on. This was to be the place of continued sacrifice. And that is pointing to Christ. You see, redemption in Christ is set forth in the offering on the threshing floor. We have those words, don't we, in Genesis 49. And this is where Christ himself would enter the temple. You see, so the book is not some sort of biographical sketch of David in his last days. But remember what the Lord said, Search the Scriptures. Ye think in them ye have eternal life, but it is they which do testify of me. You see that? As we look at the Old Testament, we are not studying lives of men. Moses and David and Samuel. It's not about men, but it's about Christ would come and build his church. And Christ would enter his temple. 
The scriptures, my friends, testify of Christ. And eventually Christ would enter the temple, though it would be defiled. He would say, raise the temple to the ground. And I will raise it up in three days. He was speaking of himself, wasn't he? Sacrifice was met in himself. Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, he said. But a body hast thou prepared for me. The very Lord himself would give his life as a ransom for many. What we have, friends, unfolding is the unfolding of Christ for our redemption. Christ really is announcing his coming. His coming. His coming. He came. But my friends, he's coming again. First time he came to give his life as a ransom for many. And when he comes again, he will take them to glory. We will be with him. And with dear David, in whom was his hope. Amen.